Well, good morning. If you would turn your Bible to John chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 35 to 42. Thank you, Adam, choir, musicians, for leading us in worship through song, preparing us for worship through the preaching of the Word of God. Uh, We had a tremendous week of prayer as a church this week. Hal and everyone that was involved with that, thank you for leading us in a remarkable week. I know some of you couldn't be here. You're providentially hindered. No guilt there. But really try to, if you can, plan to be here next year for that. I, I personally believe, based on what Scripture says about prayer, that it's the most important week on our church's calendar. Prayer flexes the muscles of omnipotence. And we want to see God do things here that only omnipotence uh, can do. And so when we pray, we are confessing we can't do anything of any redemptive value. It's all of grace through the sovereign power of our Lord. Another announcement before we start. Uh, I began the preaching class again on Tuesday morning that Brother Al started many years ago. So we'll be meeting in 208 at 630. If you would like to be there, we'll be going through uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Preaching and Preachers. It was the book the Lord used to sense my call to the gospel ministry. And so especially our college students who may be sensing some kind of vocational call, we would love to have you there on, on Tuesday morning, our men from the college. Well, if you would look with me in verse 35, John the Evangelist, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit says, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. And we just would ask right now, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give us a word, that you would enlighten our eyes with the word this morning. I pray that the word would go forth in power, and I pray that John's intention in writing this passage would be communicated clearly this morning, faithfully this morning, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may your people receive this word in the obedience of faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2015, I'd been jogging on a Saturday morning, and I'd, after the jog, I was cooling down, so I called one of my church members who was sick and dying, and I was calling to encourage him, but as I got to my doorstep, 
I told him, I said, I hear fire truck in our neighborhood. Uh, within five seconds, I said, you know that fire truck I told you I heard in the neighborhood is actually in my front yard now. So I walked inside and the house was filled with smoke. And, and I said, um, what's with the smoke? And Heather said, Nate's trying to learn how to make pancakes. <laughs> Don't worry, it's nothing. I said, well, the fire department thinks it's something. <laughs> and about that time, they came storming through our front door. I said, it's nothing. And they continued storming through the house. And they went through every nook and cranny of the house to ensure there was no fire. My response was frustration, a rolling of the eyes. Contrast that with my good friend Jeremy Pierre. Two years ago, a fire broke out on his top floor of his house, and the fire department came, and though they could not salvage the top floor, they saved all of the family, and they saved and salvaged the rest of the house. Jeremy Pierre's response was gratitude and love and reverence and new devotion for these faithful firemen. Now, what was the difference between my response and, and Jeremy's response? In my case, there was no real danger. In Jeremy's case, the situation was very dire. In the same way, there are two kinds of people who respond to the message of the lamb who died for the forgiveness of sins. There are those who do not perceive they're in danger. They do not perceive any real need. And therefore, they are dismissive. <laughs> sometimes even hostile. And yet there are others who recognize their brokenness. They recognize their sin condition. They recognize they, that they are in, uh, deserving of, of judgment. And that message moves them to repentance and faith and awe and worship and adoration. Only those will respond in desperate faith to the Lamb. Only those desire to follow the Lamb. Only those desire to abide with the Lamb. Only those desire to seek to tell others about the Lamb. In other words, it's only those who see their need and recognize He is the source of supply for their need. It's only those who have the makeup of a disciple. We see that today in a text that really is a, a climactic transition text. It's a transition from the last old covenant prophet, that is John the Baptist, to the one that the prophets prophesied of, the fulfillment of the prophecies, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I love the way Alexander McLaren writes, he says, it was a great historical moment when the last of the prophets stood face to face with the fulfillment of all prophecy. Jewish prophecy saying 
its swan song, uttered its last rejoicing, Eureka, I have found him. At this point, we have seen in John 1 that John the Baptist has testified uh, to Jesus's or the Son of God's pre-existence. Uh, he says in verse 15, he was before me. Uh, he testified to his lordship. He said, I, I'm the one who's making the way in the desert, proclaiming uh, the Lord, the Lord being Yahweh. Verse 23, he has confessed his immeasurable superiority. He says, I'm not worthy to unloose the strap of his sandals, verse 27. We've also seen him testify to that Jesus is the new creation reality. He's the one bringing about a new creation. That's why uh, we see the dove coming down on him at his baptism. He's also seen that he is the only one who has the divine right to baptize us with the Spirit, verse 33. Uh, we've seen John the Baptist testify to his sonship. He says, this is the Son of God. But seventhly, we have seen that this Son of God is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We saw that last time in verse 29, which was clearly the emphasis of John the Baptist's ministry because we see him preaching that very message today, which is the third day of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. A day from where the fruit of John the Baptist's ministry, we see from that fruit the making of the first disciples. It really becomes a paradigm for us. It's the making of a disciple. And the first thing we see in the making of, the, of, of a disciple is that the gospel, the gospel that John the Baptist preached, the gospel that we preach, the gospel compels sinners to follow Jesus. The gospel compels sinners to follow Jesus. Look with me in verse 35. The next day, so again, notice how John has been laying out the first week of Jesus' ministry. Uh, verse 29, the next day. Now verse 35, the next day. Verse 43, the next day. So he is laying out something significant that we will see when we get to chapter 2. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. This was the same message that he had preached the previous day. Of course, in the previous day, we see the, the fuller version. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Of course, last time we saw that this metaphor of a lamb is not something that John the Baptist invented. He wasn't that creative. Faithful preachers are not creative. Uh, he was examining what the Old Testament says about the one who would come. Of course, we saw last time that we see the Old Testament prophesies the lamb. And in the account where Abraham lays his son Isaac on the stake and Isaac asked his father, Father, where is the lamb? And Abraham responded, God will provide himself the lamb. And that becomes the hope of the Old Testament. The question of the Old Testament becomes, where is the lamb? And the answer to that question, God will provide himself the lamb. That is a prophecy pointing us to the lamb of God that John the Baptist was preaching. We see the lamb 
uh, typified. Uh, that is, it points beyond uh, the picture that it, it is presenting. We see that typified in the, in the Old Testament sacrificial system. We see it typified really in the Passover lamb that was sacrificed in the place of the Israelites who applied that blood of the lamb on their doorposts so that when the Lord passed over in judgment, instead of judging them, he would judge the substitute. We see the lamb personified in Isaiah 53 when Isaiah says, there's one who's coming, it will be a man. All we like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He will be like a lamb led to the slaughter. And now here we see this lamb identified Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is the only message that can reverse the curse on our sin-broken, secular culture and age. I think Charles Taylor is very helpful here. He wrote a monumental work called uh, A Secular Age, and, and he drives that home. He argues why the, the Christian faith is uniquely positioned to speak to the problems of our age as, as nothing else can because no other worldview, that is no other worldview, understands the central problem of humanity and how it must be addressed. He says this, the, there are at least two key mysteries that the Christian faith turns on. First of all, is why we are in the grip of evil. Why we were and are somehow incapable of helping ourselves to overcome this condition. A bigger government won't do it. We know that, right? More, more education won't do it. We know that. And he says, secondly, the other is how the sacrifice of Jesus broke through this helplessness and opened a way out. Taylor argues that the first question of why are we in this mess and why we can't fix it has been answered historically by the doctrine of original sin. We are born as sinners. We are sinners by birth. We are sinners by choice. Original sin involves guilt and corruption, guilt and pollution, guilt and depravity. It is true of every human being born this side of Adam. That's why we're in the mess we're in. And then secondly, the only answer to fixing this is the doctrine, he says, of penal substitution. What is penal substitution? We need someone who will take away our sins, someone who will die in our place as our substitute, satisfying God's justice on sin. You have to understand the first, original sin, to embrace the latter, penal substitution. To draw from our first analogy, the house has to be on fire before you embrace the fireman. Christ the Lamb, that metaphor signals penal substitution. This lamb will die so that we don't have to. Of course, it wasn't just the cross where he was our sacrifice. His entire earthly life was a life of substitutionary sacrifice for us. I think the Heidelberg Catechism is uniquely helpful here. 
Uh, it says that during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the anger of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that by his suffering, as the only atoning sacrifice, he might set us free, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Now, though the disciples here would not have fully understood all the implications of what the Lamb would do, at this point they knew enough to experience the power of God for their salvation. We see that clearly in our text because... And that brings us to verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they, notice, followed Jesus. Now, we know from verse 40 that one of these two disciples is Andrew. Who is the other disciple? He's never named. And the reason he isn't named is because it's the one writing this gospel. This is John of the Evangelist. He never names himself. Unlike many people today on Twitter uh, who want to make a name for themselves, John the Baptist was not interested in seeing his name in lights. He wants us to focus on his Savior. We see this here. And notice, I love this language. This is the description, the precise description of the disciple. The disciple follows Jesus. Again, notice verse 37. They heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. It reminds me of Revelation 14, 4, where it speaks of those who followed Jesus, the Lamb of God, wherever he goes. That's what a disciple is. There, there are many people who, who pray a prayer, who walk the aisle, and are immersed in water. But the description of a, of a disciple is someone who follows Jesus. He's not your fire insurance. He's your Lord. These two followed Jesus. And that brings us to the second part of this passage. We've seen that this gospel compels sinners to follow Jesus. But the second thing we see here is that this gospel compels new disciples to abide with Jesus. Look with me in verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following. And he said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him for that day. Notice that language of staying. I'll come back to that in just a second. They stayed with him for that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Again, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, this interchange, this conversation, is so very insightful, and it's easy to overlook it by reading this text too quickly. Jesus asked them, what are you seeking? Of course, Jesus knew the answer. When Jesus asks questions, he's not trying to gather information, like Columbo or some kind of private investigator. 
He wants us to come to terms with the answer to the question because that's part of his, his teaching style. What are you seeking? Uh, th- this challenged him or them to consider what they were getting into before they started following him. Uh, there are many preachers today who, who do not call potential followers to count the cost. They just promise health, wealth, and prosperity if you follow Jesus. Well, Jesus' way was to always call us to count the cost. If they were only looking for another teacher, we see that here, that they call him teacher, rabbi. Um, Yes, he is a teacher, but but he's going to be more than a teacher for them. Uh, So maybe he's not the one they needed to follow. If they were looking for perhaps a more comfortable or prosperous life, they, in fact, they'd been with the wild, in the wilderness with John the Baptist. They couldn't have been that comfortable. Um, maybe by following Jesus, they could shed their, uh, that way of life and, and, and live a more comfortable and prosperous life with Jesus. Wrong Messiah. Or maybe they were looking for a revolutionary who would deliver them from what many Jews perceived as their biggest problem, and that is Roman oppression. Well, he didn't come to do that either. Uh, But note their response. It's almost as if they don't answer the question. He asked, what are you seeking? And and, and again, they, they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Again, it doesn't seem to make sense, their response to his question. What are you seeking? Where are you staying? But this response is so very vital to understanding this passage. And it's easy to miss it because the translation here is different than the translation of that verb elsewhere in John's gospel. The word here, staying, is the word minnow. We find that word in John 15 where Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. In fact, that word is found throughout the Gospel of John. And that's why we need to to consider that word. Um, John is making a point. He uses that word, abiding or staying, more than all the other Gospels combined. It's a very important concept for John. And with this intentional wording, John is conveying this is their desire. What are you seeking? We are seeking to abide with you. We are seeking to stay with you. Now, for these original disciples... It meant time with the physical Jesus. For us, it means time with Jesus through prayer and Bible intake and Bible meditation, both individually and corporately. H.A. Ironsides, who formerly was the pastor of Moody Church and was also one of the founding trustees at Dallas Theological Seminary. He tells of when he was a young pastor visiting an elderly man who was on his deathbed. And he went to this man and, and instead of him ministering to this man, this man ministered to him. And, 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 and H.A. Ironsides was moved to tears 
by this man's knowledge of the living God. Uh, this secret counsel, the, this intimacy, and the insights that, that, that came from that intimacy. Indeed, he was moved to tears, and H.A. He, Ironsides asked this man, where did you get these things? Can you tell me where I can find a book that will open them up to me? Did you get them in a seminary or a college? And the man replied, my dear young man, I learned these things on my knees. On the mud floor of a little sod cottage in the north of Ireland, there with my Bible open before me, I used to kneel for hours at a time and ask the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul and to open the Word to my heart. And he taught me more on my knees on that mud floor than I ever could have learned in all the seminaries or colleges in the world. That man had abided with Christ throughout his life. And John here is preparing us for that vital aspect of the life of discipleship. We'll spend much more time on that in John 15. In fact, that word is used two times in verse 39. Notice. Notice the repetition, which is intentional. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was the tenth hour. Now, we don't know what was said that evening. I wish that they had, re had recordings back then to have heard what was said to them. Whatever it was, when you abide with Christ, it's life-changing. Again, this word, uh, staying and stayed, is the word for abiding. It's the same word. And, and John wants us to see that those who would become Jesus' disciples are largely in, uh, interested in being with Jesus. Now I realize that there are true Christians that go through um, various um, roller coaster experiences with God in life. And there are times where that communion is sweet, and there are other times it, it, it feels like with the psalmist, why do you stand afar off, God? Uh, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Uh, but the reality is a disciple, every true disciple, has been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God works in us by which we cry, Abba, Father. It is one of the marks of assurance that we are God's. Uh, that doesn't mean that, that that experience is always the same fervency, but it is the mark of a disciple. And if it's never your mark, maybe you need to do business with the Messiah in repentance and faith. We're seeing this is the mark of a disciple. Now, in verses 40 and four to 42, we see the effects, at least one of the effects, of abiding with Jesus. And that brings us to the final point. We've seen that the gospel compels sinners to follow Jesus. We've also seen that the gospel compels new disciples to abide with Jesus. In the last part of this passage, we see that this gospel compels 
abiding Christians to share Jesus with others. Look with me in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So he's writing at a time when everyone knows who Simon Peter is. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ, literally the anointed one. All of these various figures in the Old Testament were temporarily uh, for particular missions anointed by the Spirit. But all of these offices in the Old Testament pointed to the ultimate Messiah who would come. We have found the Christ, the anointed one. Now, what's remarkable about this is we see here, many, be, uh, many people believe today that the Old Testament saints were saved by keeping the law. It's an unfortunate understanding of the Old Testament. Uh, if you could be saved by keeping the law, there was no need for a Messiah. Um, they recognized their sin. They weren't saved by works. They were saved by looking forward to the one who would deliver them from their sin. And so you see that these two men uh, believed the way you were supposed to believe under the old covenant. There, were, there was a deliverer coming, a Messiah coming. They didn't have all the details, of course. They were in need of uh, progressive revelation. And, and, and again, their history with Jesus, when they spend those three years with Jesus, we're going to see many ups and downs as we see their misunderstanding of much of what he had come to do. But through it all, there would be this gradual upward trend in their understanding of Messiah. But I want you to notice here the spontaneous response of this new convert. It was like a knee-jerk response. This new convert responds spontaneously by going to his brother and telling him about the one who had saved him. I have a feeling that yesterday after uh, Auburn beat uh, University of Kentucky that every single person who, who was at that game did not have to be compelled to tell others about what happened. Right? The same way when we've experienced the grace of God and we are living in that grace and we are overwhelmed with that grace. When, when we recognize that the, the house was on fire and my only hope was a faithful fireman who was willing to, to lay down his life sacrificially to save me, I'm going to bend the knee and say, whatever you will. And that's what we see here in this passage. He spontaneously went to his brother. Um, incidentally, that's one reason I think it's good to spend time with new believers. We people who have already have been saved for quite some time, it's easy to get over that initial saving grace. We can leave our first love, right? But you get around a new believer and they can't shut up about Jesus. And, and the Lord uses. Now, that new believer needs you. That new believer needs your wisdom. But you need that new believer's new fervency and new jealousy. That's where Andrew was. But also, herein lies the 
secret to the extraordinary spread of Christianity on the earth in that first century. <clears throat> As 18th century historian Edward Gibbon noted, he says, it became the most sacred duty of a new convert to diffuse among his friends and relatives the inestimable blessings he had received. Statistics repeatedly demonstrate that while gospel preaching is undoubtedly important, personal witness and friendship continue to be the primary means by which people are brought to Christ. So who's your one? Who is that person that you have in your life that is not yet converted and you love them enough to seek them out? And, and we see it here. Notice in verse 42, the, the final part of, of our passage for today. He brought him to Jesus. That is, Andrew brought his brother to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said... You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Andrew becomes the first recorded person in the New Testament to personally witness about Jesus. And, and what's seen so far, and, and this shows you that there's a variety of methods for people coming to faith. Andrew and John were converted by preaching. They heard John the Baptist preach, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And they were converted by the preached word. But here we see that Peter was converted by a one-on-one -on -one evangelism encounter. In fact, Andrew becomes the one. This is really the only thing we know about Andrew. He doesn't appear to be a great preacher. He didn't write a book of the New Testament. Uh, he, he, there was nothing uniquely uh, superior about his gifts. Andrew is the disciple known for bringing people to Jesus. So, for instance, in John 6, uh, when you have the feeding of the 5,000 with that boy's loaves uh, and the two fish. Andrew is the one who brought the boy to Jesus. In John chapter 12, when the Greek said, we wish to see Jesus. I love that, that line. We would see Jesus. We wish to see him. Andrew was the one who brought them to Jesus. Andrew, before he was a disciple, 24 hours had already made another disciple. <clears throat> John MacArthur, in his book, Ordinary, 12 Ordinary Men, writes, most people do not come to Christ as an immediate response to a sermon they hear in a crowded setting. Now, that's not to say that sermon's not effective. The Word of God, uh, we're planting seeds like a farmer. And so there's a cumulative effect. If you're not a Christian here yet this morning, uh, it's very possible that you will be converted at some point. There's a reason you're here. It's not here, you're not here by a coincidence. 
You're here by divine design, but it, it, there's a cumulative effect. So they hear the word of God preached. They hear the gospel of God preached. And then someone in their dorm room or someone in their workplace comes to them and, and shares the life of faith. It's just, a, it's just a cumulative effect. He says they come to Christ because of the influence of an individual. In the overwhelming majority of new believers' testimonies, they tell us they came to Christ primarily because of the testimony of a coworker, a neighbor, a relative, or a friend. There's no question that the most effective means for bringing people to Christ is one at a time, on an individual basis. And that is God's strategy. Although the, the pulpit should be clear on the gospel, and if I ever preach a sermon where you don't hear the gospel explicit, explicitly preached, you come see me afterwards. I will repent to the church in the next service. I pray the gospel, I preach the gospel. And yet, my primary audience when I preach, is not to unbelievers, though I'm very aware they're present. My pr primary audience is believers. My calling is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Uh, if there are a thousand people here this morning, 900 people here this morning, you're going to be in 900 places I can't be this week. My job is to equip you to go with that gospel and impact others as Andrew impacted his brother. Indeed, I believe one-on-one -on -one is the primary method in the church. And, and one thing that's for certain, we've seen this on Thursday nights when we've gone out on campus, but you've seen it when you've gone out in whatever evangelism that you have done. When you step out in faith and get out of your comfort zone, kingdom things happen. Kingdom things happen that can only be explained by the sovereign grace of God. In Andrew's case, he happened to lead the one to Jesus who would preach Pentecost, where 3,000 would be converted. He happened to lead the one to Jesus who would be one of Jesus' intimate three. He happened to lead the one to Jesus who would write two New Testament epistles. He created a monster. But in church history, there's innumerable stories akin to this. Have you ever heard of Dwight L. Moody? If you've been raised in the church for any time, you know who uh, Dwight L. Moody is. He was a 19th century evangelist. He, he was so beloved, they, they named a school after him um, in, in Chicago. And they, they named a church at him, a, a very well-known, prestigious, faithful church, Moody Church in Chicago. Dwight L. Moody was responsible for leading a man named Wilbur Chapman to Christ. You probably don't know who Wilbur Chapman is, but after Dwight L. Moody's generation, Wilbur Chapman became the, the leading evangelist in America. And one day, he and his team were on State Street in Chicago, and there was a baseball player from the Chicago White Stockings leaning against the bar he had just come out of. And 
Chapman invited that baseball player, they had an, they had an off night, to come to his, his meeting that night. And that man was gloriously converted. His name was Billy Sunday. Within two years, Billy Sunday is on Wilbur Chapman's evangelism team. And then B Wilbur Chapman decided to take a local church as a pastor. And Billy Sunday took over as the primary evangelist. And one night, Billy Sunday was preaching and a man named Mordecai Ham was converted to Christ. Mordecai Ham became an evangelist. And one night, one fellow in North Carolina decided to bring his mischievous friend, who was also a skeptic, to the, to the meeting that night. And that friend was converted. His name was Billy Graham, who virtually everyone tells you will impact more people than anyone else. More people heard the gospel uh, through Billy Graham than anyone else in history. But that isn't the rest of the story. Uh, that's found at the beginning. Who led Dwight L. Moody to Christ? Well, Dwight L. Moody was a young fellow working in a shoe store. And one day, this Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball went to visit all the young fellows who had at some point visited his Sunday school class to find out where they were with the Lord. And in that shoe store, he led Dwight L. Moody to Jesus Christ. But that's not even the rest of the story. Who encouraged Edward Kimball to take that gospel to this young fellow in the, in the shoe store? His pastor. What's his name? No one knows. No one knows. It doesn't matter. But this pastor set in motion a chain of events that literally impacted the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. As the saying goes, you can count the apples on the tree, but who can count the apples in a seed? You can count the apples on a tree, but who can count the apples in a seed? So is the influence of one person. The influence one person can make with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only the Lord knows the apples that stem from the seed of Andrew, who, by all accounts, was nothing particularly special. He didn't appear to be particularly gifted. Notice all he did. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. And Simon was changed. Andrew didn't change him. The one he brought him to changed him. And then this one, the Son of God, changed Simon's name. Now, why did he change his name? We're going to close here. Well, first of all, it showed that Jesus had unique plans for Peter, for Simon. His name means rock. And we'll learn in time that his confession, his his office of apostle, that would be uh, the rock on which the church would be built. 
A second reason I think he changed his name, it showed, again, we're beholding Jesus here. His lordly authority over all those who follow him. Only a lord can change someone's name. And he changed Simon's name, which reflected he had crucial, crucial plans for Simon. And then finally it shows, and this could be true, said of all of us, we're going to be given a new name, Revelation 2. It shows that Jesus intends to make his followers new creatures. Peter is initially impulsive. He, keep, he, he needed peppermint socks because he kept his foot in his mouth. He, he was slow in his sanctification. Let's be honest, he's a lot like us. He was anything but a rock in those early years, but in time. He gradually becomes the pillar of the church. In time, he is willing to die upside down because he did not want to die. He was not worthy to die like his, his Savior. Jesus is preparing Simon for what divine grace will accomplish. Namely, that grace in the Lamb of God makes disciples. And it's passages like this that the Lord uses for those of us who are already disciples to grow us in our understanding of what a disciple is. If you're an athlete, you, you have to watch film uh, on excellence. You're already an athlete, but when you watch excellent people playing your position, you become better. We're seeing a portrait of what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who recognizes their sin and the judgment on their sin, and they flee to Jesus. A disciple, once fleeing to Jesus, now desires to, to be with him and abide with him. And once you've abided with Jesus, you desire others to know the one that you've committed to. And, and that is a, an invitation as well. It's an invitation to those of you who do not yet know Jesus. You, you can respond to Jesus the way Simon Peter responded. The way Andrew responded. The way John the Evangelist responded. All it requires you to do is see. Behold the Lamb of God who came to take away your sins. How did he do it? He did it by dying in our place. Taking the judgment we deserve. What if we had a God that didn't judge sin? There'd be no hope in this world. It is good that God judges sin. But he's also made provision for our sin in the substitute. If you'll repent of your sin and trust in that, that substitute, the Lamb, your sins will be forgiven and you will be called a new disciple. As Adam and the musicians come forward, I want you to consider that you are here today by providence. It's not a coincidence you're here. Um, for one, being here makes you accountable to the word. Uh, but two, you're here because of the goodness of God. There are people today that slept in and they didn't hear about the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. But you heard. You heard that no matter how sinful you are right now, how sinful your past is, he came to take away our sins. We heard this morning where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Won't you come to Christ this morning as we stand and sing?
Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.